big sigh. I'm so exhausted, Chris. How about you? I am. I'm not exhausted. I'm just really busy, and that's it. I mean, no complaining about it. Just it is what it is. There's lots of things going on in the semester. Stuff uh, overfilling my plate. Stuff living the dream is what I like to say without. I would say that is part of it, but I would also say I haven't been able to actually do any of my own work for like two weeks. You know, here's what I want to know. So we're talking to Vince Batista. Yes. And what I want to know is no slight to Vince. We're going to learn about him in just a second, but he does work. It sounds like similar to what you do. Yes. I have not heard except in passing about the work that you've done over the past year in Finland at all, except in these sort of oblique uh, interactions in which I go, oh crap, I don't know how that field season went. So because it's relevant, what have you been up to? (laughs) Yeah, so I started 2019 out in the field. I spent all of January 2019 in Rovaniemi, Finland, and various surrounding areas, working with uh, the reindeer herders up there, and specifically measuring resting metabolic rate, and then brown adipose tissue activation, and so various blood biomarkers, body composition, you know, the, you know, the kind of typical stuff that we often all collect. And it was a really great field season. It went off without a hitch. I mean, January at and above the Arctic Circle <laughs> doesn't mean you're going to have an easy time, uh, not just with weather, but you know, it's dark almost the entire time you're there. But everything went really well. I handled it really well. There's totally brown tissue, brown adipose tissue within this population. Among my folks, it looks like uh, an average and with just rough analysis at this point, increased their resting metabolic rates by about 8 9% through cold exposure and brown adipose tissue activation. And as we'll talk about with Vince today, and we talked about with Steph Levy, ages ago now at this point, the way that we activate brown adipose tissue is through mild controlled cold exposure. And it's usually these really awesome suits that have tubes, the bomb suits, tubes running through them so that you can flush it with cold water. And then you measure metabolic rate while also taking thermal images of kind of above their shoulder and neck region throughout that cold exposure to detect brown fat. So you take these giant suits with you to Finland? Yeah, they're not super giant. They're they're heavy because they have these plastic tubes throughout them, but they're basically like a sweatsuit with just tubing looped all the way through them and uh, a pump that you can attach to pump the water through. Would you do this work? Are you like, forgive, this is going to sound flip, but it's not meant to, just to sort of paint the picture. Are you going out where they're herding reindeer out on the ice where they're ice fishing? Or are they coming into a lab? What are you doing? No, so it's a mix. Uh, It depends on how close they live already to the city of Rovaniemi, where I'm based out of. If they live close enough, they're willing to drive to me, uh, to like a base of operations that we have at the Circle of the Arctic Center with my collaborators, um, Mina Turunen and Pai Visopola. And that's really nice and convenient uh, to have people just come there because everything's set up and good to go. But all of the equipment is also mobile. So we did a number of different trips during January this past year where we went out to them. Uh, So at one point, we did measurements in the room above a restaurant uh, for a couple of herders. We've done it in their homes. We try to make it as convenient as possible because it's like a two and a half hour protocol for each person. And they have to be fasted, no caffeine. And Finland has like the highest coffee consumption per capita. 
So telling people they can't have coffee first thing in the morning, that is a sacrifice. <laughs> that would be brutal for me. <laughs> it's a real sacrifice. And so we try to be as accommodating as possible. So we'll come back and talk more about, about your research. Thank you. That's always interesting. Yeah, and I, I mean, apologize for not asking sooner. No, it's all right. And so that's what makes today's interview so exciting. It's going to be a lot of geeking out like I did with Steph Levy months ago. I came across Vince by happenstance at the AAPA meetings this past year in March in Cleveland. I think I was walking to go see a grad student or find somebody else. And of course, what I saw was the big Michigan Block M. And I'm like, oh, I must go see because go blue. And then the second thing I saw were thermal images of the, the shoulder and neck region. I'm like, this guy's studying brown fat. And lo and behold, he was. And so we connected. And I think that'll be a mutually beneficial experience for both of us to be chit-chatting since there's like three people now that study this within anthropology. There, it isn't a big, broad field. <laughs> it's yeah. pretty narrow and isolated right now. So we need all the collaboration we can get. All right. Let's bring him on. Welcome to the Sausage of Science, Vince. Glad to be here. How's it going? <laughs> How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? It's super windy here in Albany and gray and kind of cold. So I'm in a blanket at home. It's beautiful here in Alabama. (laughs) I should be outside. Should be. Here we are interviewing you. So, hey, let's dig right in since we're, we're running a little bit behind. We might as well just jump right in and go with kind of our typical first question about what is your origin story? Kind of where are you now and how you got interested in anthropology and why you decided to pursue a degree in it? Sure. So uh, I'm a PhD candidate at U of M, University of Michigan. Go blue! Uh, yeah, go blue. Exactly. Yeah. I'm doing bioanthropology, but my undergrad was more on the archaeology side of things. I actually have a master's in archaeological science, so I kind of had a roundabout way of getting into bioanthropology. My current research is looking at cold climate adaptation, and I do kind of the population genetics, but also I'm pretty interested in cultural adaptations to cold. So the ways that we use cultural buffers help us offset the burden of cold stress, but also how that process introduces us kind of in like a niche construction manner to other factors that can have impacts on our fitness and diet, things like that. So where are you um, from? from? I'm from Connecticut, born and raised in New Haven County in Connecticut and went to University of Connecticut as an undergrad. Did my master's at Durham University in the UK. And now I'm here in Ann Arbor where it's also really windy and wet. So how'd you get into anthropology to begin with? Like what, what led you down that road? Okay, this is going to sound really nerdy, but when I was a kid, I must have been 10 or something like that. My dad got me Walking with Cavemen, the documentary series on VHS. And I remember watching it and being like, wow, this is really fascinating. And I also don't believe half the stuff that they're saying. Got really interested in it. And um, I started taking anthro coursework as an undergrad. And I, at the time, I wasn't even an anthro major. I was doing, I think, psychology and poli-sci. Um, and then I started taking some courses with the old world uh, prehistoric archaeology folks. And I got super into Neanderthals. And I've been kind of a, all my research has pretty much centered around Neanderthals. And so one of the reasons why I wanted to come to U of M is because, one, I wanted a four-field um, background in anthropology. Uh, but two, is a pretty good place to come if you're interested in skeletal biology, things like that, especially as it pertains to human evolution, especially if you're into Neanderthals. This is a cool place to come do this. Um, so Professor Wolpoff is one of my two advisors, and the other one is Professor Abby Bigham. Um, so between the pair of them, I get a lot of really cool opportunities to study everything from functional changes in our DNA and how that leads to changes in our anatomy and what that means from an evolutionary standpoint, et cetera. So 
that's pretty cool. It is cool. I feel like the reach yeah. of Milford expands with every interview we do. Well, I mean, he's had like 70 grad students or something. But it's also, I was his undergrad. Yeah, and look at like that. The undergrad reach is really strong too. And I'm not yeah. the only one in our field that can say that. And so it's, yeah. it's an impressive thing. I met you at the AAPAs this past year yep. at your poster. How about you tell us a little bit about that work that you presented on? So I guess this goes back to Neanderthals again. When I was an undergrad, there was a person doing a postdoc in my lab who was doing a, a poster about Neanderthal clothing, something along the lines. Of, I'm not, I'm not going to remember it correctly, but I remember being like, man, like they have such a bad rap. <laughs> These are people just like us, maybe a little bit different from us, but they're just a different way of being human. But they had tools. They lived in warm places when it was cold. Some of them lived in cold places when it was cold. But what is it with people trying to describe a ecology or an ecological species or something like that as it pertains to Neanderthals? That was one thing that really got me thinking. And then I read a paper by Stiegman and colleagues about climate adaptation. Mm-hmm. And there was a, a couple of references to Neanderthals and some ideas about brown fat. And I, um, I was like, oh, wow, that's, that's pretty interesting. It's a great classic uh, paper. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great paper. And so at first I was interested in it in terms of acclimatization. And then I got a little bit more interested in terms of like a population genetic standpoint about how maybe there's changes related to expression. Uh, gene expression or things that can be implicated in non-shivering thermogenesis. So then when I came to grad school, my original PhD project was looking at this in Tierra del Fuego in southern Chile in Argentina. That project had some difficulty materializing because there are some issues kind of with the way that I wanted to design the project and the way that I wanted to be on the ground doing it. And I was a bit hesitant to kind of push with the project because I didn't feel like I did the proper amount of rapport building. I didn't feel like I had a good enough connection with the community where I wasn't comfortable kind of imposing my research or myself or any of my friends. I I just didn't really want to do that. So um, in the past year, we changed my project idea to being from kind of southerly circumpolar groups to being up in the north. So now I just finished writing my winter grand like an hour ago (laughs) about... Yeah, so this internal deadline is today. But um, now we're trying to do this in northerly circumpolar regions in north scale populations. So people who live in the Faroes and Shetland, Orkney. In order to kind of look at how humans thermoregulate, I needed to develop a field deployable method of doing this. And so to do that, we got one of these liquid cooling ventilation garments and like a pocket sized thermal imaging camera. And we wanted to see if, like, in only an hour period of time, if we could get people. If we could recruit participants and, and only during an hour of cold exposure, if we can trigger changes in um, skin surface temperatures across the upper chest. And so we did a little pilot study, only had a couple participants. Um, but even in this small pilot study, in every single individual, we triggered this like uh, non-shivering response to cold. So that was pretty cool. So that's what I presented at APAs, and that's what my poster was. And we're building that out right now for a larger study pending IRB approval. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, IRB has a real issue with this protocol, at least mine, mine did. <laughs> it, was, it took some convincing to get them to realize that we're not like dumping them in an ice bucket and right. staying it. Well, that's, <laughs> that's one of the reasons why, you know, this is important because if you look at previous studies like Carlton Kuhn and his buddies back in the 60s did some really terrible stuff to look at yeah. cold adaptation, cold exposure. Mm-hmm. And like, not for nothing, there were... I mean, scientists who work for the SS who did really terrible things. Mm-hmm. And even here in the United States, really terrible things were done in like 
that, that is a history that we need to address, no, no doubt. That's 100% true. And I mean, that's why it took so long for me to develop trust in Finland. Yeah. Because a lot of the yeah. people I worked with still have a living memory of researchers coming in when yeah. they were kids and doing these very suspect kinds of studies. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I am, I'm not going to like get into the detail of the methodology of your poster now, because I know you and I are probably going to have yeah. a long, in-depth conversation about this kind of thing <laughs> later yeah. on. So you mentioned a couple of places. I guess, how did you get interested in, in brown fat to begin with? Was it just from the Stegman article? Well, also uh, a professor in the department, Maureen Devlin, um, she's been working with brown fat for a while now. And she kind of, I don't think she did it explicitly. I think she planted this little like seed in my brain and then kind of encouraged it. And uh, I think it's just one, a lot of people now know what it is. Like a lot of people in the public have heard of brown fat now and it's mm -hmm. becoming, it's like there's a, a greater public interest in it. It's, in it's like a buzzword of, now. Right, exactly. It's like the word sustainability, right? <laughs> it's like a lot of people use it. They're interested in it. They don't know too much about it, but <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a low hanging fruit, I guess, when it comes to evolutionary adaptations. A lot of people are looking at things like skeletal anatomy, body proportionality, things like that. But this is something that's a more of like a, a plastic response and something that we can quantify a little bit more easily than I think we were able to in years past. So, so I see a, I see yeah. an HBA plenary session in, in ahead. One year it was all uh, cortisol, then the next year it was milk, then the next year it was right. sleep, then this year it was water insecurity. So brown, brown, fat, fat. brown fat is the new mother's milk slash water insecurity. With like yeah. four, maybe five people able to present on it. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, the cool thing, the thing that's really fascinated me about brown fat is that you can trigger it like there's this postprandial activation of fats. So you eat and then you can start expressing ECP and all this stuff. And if you think about people who live in circumpolar regions where like the food items they have are super high fat food items, you're getting selection for the ability to break down these really complex fats or whatever. And that could be something that's also mediating brown fat thermogenesis. So this is like mm -hmm. a really nice interconnected thing. Like some of the folks down in Chile, the ethno-historical and oral historical records talk about them. They would have these big parties whenever a whale washed up on shore, when they would go kill seals mm -hmm. and things like that. There was some seafarer down there from Europe who, who was like, oh, aren't you cold? You're not really wearing any clothes. And he's like, mm, I'm not cold. And they're just chomping down on the seal meat. And who knows, maybe there's something, to, something there. Yeah, no, it's really cool. And uh, maybe since you just finished your winter grin, you want to tell us a little bit more about that project, about like the dissertation research. Before that, right. can I just say, Kara, is this why you notice the parents leaving their kid outside the door to take a nap outside? Is this related somehow? So, there's a couple of interesting things that I, I learned, and I think I really only learned in Finland on this trip. One, yes. So at least in the northern part of Finland, yeah, people just like put their babies in strollers and put them outside to take their naps all year round. It doesn't matter the temperature. And there's just mm -hmm. like a blanket in there. And I'm like, that's impressive. That is amazing. And they don't think anything of it. Uh, and they didn't until, you know, I came in doing these measurements. And now they have all these questions about, like, what does the brown fat look like in their babies versus people who don't have their baby right. take naps out in the middle of the cold? Um, I don't want to deal with that IRB because, <laughs> no. However, it's interesting. Someone with, you know, greater gumption to work with children than I have, that's a fantastic study to look at. Yeah. But the other thing I learned, like talking to people in, in Rovaniemi, the city, they have such a range of cold tolerance that's just like our range of cold tolerance. Even right. though they live at the Arctic Circle, there are people like, 
I hate the cold. I can't stand the cold. And there are people like, I don't feel the cold. It's nothing at all. And yeah. I totally expected everybody to be like, I don't feel the cold. It's nothing. But no, it's a complete range of variation like you see everywhere else. It's interesting because you, you listen to people who live in the tropics mm. and they're like, oh, yeah, they're like heat adapted because they're tall and they're slender and all this other stuff. They're like, man, it's too hot to do anything today. I'm going to yeah. take a nap because the sun's right above me. Yeah. yeah. Same thing. You get the range no matter where you go. Uh, and I thought that was really interesting. I thought that was yeah. cool. Anyway, tell us about your dissertation topic and project. Well, well, I guess, well, pending funding, um, we're going to basically do this cold challenge where participants are going to wear this liquid cooling ventilation garment for a period of one hour. Over that period of time, we're going to track changes in blood pressure. We're going to look at kind of pinpoint differences in skin surface temperature across the thorax. Um, we're going to gather a bunch of other phenotype data. Most of these are kind of your classic anthropometric things like seated height and waist hip ratio, stuff like that. So that's one aspect of it. Then what we're going to do is do a uh, population genetics approach where we compare this kind of north scale exome sample with people from Chilento in southern Italy. It's just an isolate community in Campania, which is like a pretty warm, pretty awesome place. And then we're going to look at people from hot climates, I guess you could say in, in Asia and probably in Africa. And we're going to run some population genetics text, tests like locus specific branch length, which shows you like how highly differentiated certain SNPs are between populations. So if there's like a really long branch, um, it would indicate something like a, a SNP is like basically fixed in one population, but absent in other populations. And then you can run other tests from there, seeing whether or not that's a result of a protein coding change that impacts phenotypes or something like that. So, And then the last thing to do is uh, an association study. So we actually look at sites in the exome that are implicated in kind of this composite uh, thermogenic score. So we're going to develop a scoring system where basically changes in temperature are, are mediated by things like anatomy or brown fat or things like that. So then we're going to have sets of candidate genes where we'll be like, hey, we know that these sites are under selection and they're also implicated in changing your body temperature. So this pretty good indicator that there are there are population specific changes under selection that are impacting these people's ability to thermoregulate mm. down the project but like i said we need to get funding um i have some collaborators i guess the project has collaborators right now at the university of edinburgh that they're part of this orcades and viking data set when these are like they have thousands of exomes from people from across the north atlantic um, in shetland orkney scotland stuff like that. We're going to try to expand that um, by recruiting individuals from the Faroe Islands and mm -hmm. maybe some individuals from Iceland if possible. Yeah, and then that'll be, that'll be it. And I think you're probably also going to see some really interesting stuff regarding linkage, disequilibrium and stuff like that on these little tiny islands. And it'll be cool to look at drift and a lot of this yeah. other fun stuff. Yeah. You have a really kind of very holistic view on this whole thing, incorporating a lot of different moving parts. That's quite impressive. For field. <laughs> Even within like the biological anthropology, yeah. you're connecting a lot of different subfields within the subfield, and that's that takes a lot of work. It's impressive. Yeah, well, I haven't done any of the work yet, so I appreciate okay. the kind of work. It's an impressive like idea. So apparently, the two of you had an impress uh, a fun Twitter conversation mm -hmm. about sports and making sausage. I'm intrigued. What was that about? You want to start with the sausage or start with the sports? I don't know. I missed the whole thing, so I have no idea. <laughs> well, maybe we'll start with the sports because then the sausage might, you know, might end up in the weeds with the sausages. But uh, <laughs> so you know, I'm not, I'm not athletic at all. <laughs> I love watching sports, but I'm, I'm not 
I'm not good at sports, which is, I guess, kind of par for the course when you have academics. But anyways, so basically there's a soccer team that was started in Naples mm. called Afro Napoli United. And uh, what's really interesting is that this team is basically composed of migrants from Africa, South America, from Asia. They're playing in Naples and the entire mission statement of this soccer team is to combat racism on the ground. So like their, their idea is, so when they were started in I think 2009 or something like that, they came up with a mission statement that says that they are, as amateur athletes, their job is to, yes, it's nice that sport and activity and things are good for your health, but sport is also a vehicle for combating what they call like uh, racialized taboos, I think is the language that they use on their website. Um, which is true. I mean, like it's these people run this team almost like a meritocracy, not in the way that maybe folks here in the States would call the U.S. a meritocracy. But when it's everybody who everybody on the team is coming from a similar migrant community and they're just playing sports. Right. And so like their likelihood of starting their ability to climb the ladder of success in sport is all the result of their hard work and their ability to cooperate and collaborate and their willingness to learn. And um, this is really cool because while they're playing with this team, they're learning Italian, um, they're networking with people, they're potentially getting jobs, and they're also doing a lot to actually combat racism. And so like all this is well and good and it's like a nice feel good story, but they're also good. They're like actually a good team. So Naples, the uh, Serie A, like the first division team, when I was a kid, was relegated to like, the third division, the mm-hmm. Series C. So I never really got to watch being here in the States, like even though it's my familial home team, I never really got to be a fan of them. Um, but Diego Maradona used to play for them. So mm-hmm. like the god Diego Maradona used to play for Naples. And now his son plays for this Afro-Napoli team, which is oh. pretty interesting. And interestingly, I mean, speaking of Argentinians, I guess the, the logo, like the crest for this Afro-Napoli team has the signature of Che Guevara on it. So they're like these internationalists, like probably, I guess, being pro-immigrant means you're left-leaning these days. So I guess they're kind of a left-leaning organization. But the, the one thing that I don't think this article explicitly said is that like Naples, Naples is a port city. It's always been a port city. There's always been migrants going to Naples. Like if you go to Pompeii, there is a individual, a cast of this individual who was buried during the, the eruption of Vesuvius. The guy looks like he's from East Africa. He was probably probably a first generation migrant from East Africa. That was a that was a gladiator, right? And this guy has like like really nice clothing on and things like that. So not only was he a gladiator, but he was like a high ranking. Like he must have done really well for himself. And he was, I mean, so you always have people going there. Um, not to mention even earlier than that, like Carthaginians had a colony there, Greeks had a colony there, people from across the Mideast had colonies there. So this idea of like African migrants, it's not new. Like, mm you have migrants coming from North Africa all the time. Like Sicily was part of a caliphate for a while. There were probably more speakers of Arabic in Sicily than there were speakers of like Italian languages in Sicily for a while. So there's a really racialized idea from these. There's basically a white nationalist party in the North. That's like a secessionist party called the Lega Nord. Um, And they use even genetics papers that talk about Longobard DNA. They use these things to kind of, filling gaps in their political agenda and the big thing they're about is like nationalism like we are a single nation state of white europeans and like these migrants are coming here and destroying our well-being so then the soccer team who is in the historical port the historical endpoint for migrations from africa who has a lot of players from africa they're kicking butt and it's really nice because they're combating racism and also beating the racists so that's like a pretty cool story 
I love that for so many, many reasons. I have a lot of words. Let me try to summarize. So also not a sporty person, but I grew up playing soccer. I coached and I refereed and now have been coaching my kids' high school soccer team. They're at a, I'd say 98, 95, 98% African-American school. For those who cannot see me, I am very white. My kids are also very white. So they're the, in, in a white minority. So the school is great about studying civil rights and civil rights in the South and some of the sites down here that have been important. But one of my frustrations with U.S. soccer is how suburban white and class oriented the model here is. And again, right. as a non-sporty person, I say that because I see the social mobility engendered for males, for oh, yeah. poor males to football. Soccer is a similar avenue for U.S. women, our women's team kicks ass, our men's team embarrasses us, right? Sorry, men, mm -hmm. you're really good players, but you didn't make the World you Cup. You don't need to apologize. They're terrible. So, right. <laughs> so here at Alabama, we have, uh, we have a women's NCAA college team. We don't, we don't have a men's. So there's, there's these opportunities there, yet the way soccer is set up in the U.S. and here in, in Alabama, it's a pay-to-play model that privileges white families who can afford it and are willing to pay it, when really the, the equipment and expenses to play soccer are almost nothing. You need so a it, ball. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you end up with the disparity in who actually plays it here. And so the team that, that I've been working with, most of the players have never played soccer, and yet they're fantastic athletes. And, and so one of the goals for us has been to not worry about winning, but to develop some of those coordination, cooperation things as a sport and as a physical, healthy activity, but then also all of the other things that go into cooperation that you mentioned have been part of what we're doing there. So this, this sounds like a really, really cool model that I can share with these kids who have very yep. little knowledge and awareness of what goes on in the world. Because I try to find them videos to show them skills. And I realize half the time I'm sending them videos of some white dude doing these soccer things. And I'm like, damn it. I'll go back to the Twitter thread and dig out that link and we'll try to include it in the show notes so that it's yeah. easy for everyone to access. Well, the other That's thing that you mentioned that I just want to touch on, since we are a podcast, a lot of times we'll drop podcast references to, to others. There's one called Tides of History and um, the previous yeah, one. Yeah, I've heard that. Okay. The same guy did the fall of Rome. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I love about that podcast or both those podcasts is how they emphasize the multiculturalism and diversity of the Roman empire, which you, you, you mentioned, or you're right. touching on there with regard to Italy and how so much diversity was linked by the use of Roman as a common language and sort of a cosmopolitan right. ethos that extended throughout the empire. So that kind of stuff that we talk about today is not new. And I, I don't know if you know who Mary Beard is, but she's a historian. She does like a lot of Romano-Britain kind of stuff. And she got a huge backlash. Um, there was a huge backlash against her. I think she was involved in like a BBC cartoon or something like that where they showed darker skinned individuals in like Roman London or something like that. And these Brexity, UKIPI sort of folks like lost their mind, absolutely lost their mind. Despite the fact that there is historical evidence of individuals from probably the Near East, it looks like, being buried in cemeteries in the UK. Like we know there's like evidence that people from all over the world were going places where the Romans were, right? So what's kind of interesting also is that 
who the Romans were as an identity, if you could call them that, changed through time. Like Byzantine Rome, that like people who are the ancestors of modern Turks, they were Romans. They called themselves Romans. If you said they weren't Romans, they wouldn't believe you because they were, right? And like just because they were Greek speaking, just like Romans in southern Italy were, it doesn't mean they weren't Romans. It's a weird situation when you have people like Mussolini in the 30s and 40s who's trying to rebuild Rome, but rebuild it as an exclusively white italic rome when rome was never like that um mm. it's interesting there's a i think maybe a directional bias that i'm talking about here in terms of migration like we talk a lot about migration around the mediterranean but there was also transalpine migrations mm. so like there are celts in northern italy there are actually celts in southern italy today they're like bagpipes for example are from italy it looks like archaeologically like a lot of these things that we identify with populations kind of social constructs that are meant to like reify ideas of like race and belonging ethnicity but um they don't really pan out variation is clinal a lot of the time you know like people move like it's, it's kind of silly to construct these false barriers between populations when we know that humans tend to supersede them this may be one of the most broad-ranging podcast interviews yeah. i've ever had yeah it's i have pretty well, bad idea when it comes to that kind of stuff well no i mean you're four field yeah. you oh, said that's it. it that's it the reason many of us get into anthropology is because it gives us the opportunity to study all this stuff that and it's all connected frankly yeah i mean we study the human condition right so anything that involves humans it's fair game. I teach a class on evolution, not just human evolution. And everything we've talked about here, I've said in a lecture, and I think several of the things we've just talked about, I said in a lecture an hour ago from my culminating yeah. lecture. So, yeah. Well, let's okay. switch gears. What do you want to say about the actual cooking, making process of sausage? Oh, man. <laughs> sausage is like uh, the sausage of food, you know? <laughs> no, it's like, first of all, it's an excellent food. And I really thank prehistoric Germanic populations for inventing it. It's really excellent. But um, I don't know. It's one of these interesting food items that because of diaspora, you have very different ways of creating sausages mm -hmm. all over the world. And those are all going to reflect local population movements, contacts and things like that. I don't know. You could probably write a book about like sausage and write a book about pizza. And they'd be like very interesting parallels of one another. Hmm. I had this oh, the other day. One of the few places in Ann Arbor that I think is objectively good is this place called Beer Camp where they make all these ridiculous sausages. And I had this wild boar chorizo. Nice. <laughs> which was just like the most phenomenal, the most phenomenal stuff. I love food. I could like it in another Another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing we always like to kind of finish things up on is the fun question. What do you do in your life that's kind of for work-life balance, a hobby, watch, listen, read, any of those? Eat. Oh, man. Listen to. Well, I, I'm a I'm a prolific eater, which is I really enjoy eating and I enjoy cooking too. But I guess apart from food, um, I'm a pretty avid fly fisherman. Actually, I uh, one of the reasons why I came to to Ann Arbor for grad school is kind of different. You know, when you grow up in New England and you're close to not nice beaches necessarily near me, but close to the water is uh it's kind of a weird learning curve. Also because it's really flat here, I have trouble orienting myself sometimes. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> But yeah, I'm a, I really love fly fishing. It's one of my biggest hobbies. I actually have, I just tied a fly to be published in Eastern Fly Fishing Magazine, which is a pretty self-explanatory magazine yeah. for fly fishing. I think it's a really good hobby and really um, an awesome way to be able to connect with nature. I also think it's a really cool way of getting kids involved into conservation. Mm. If we can do it in a, in a way that doesn't privilege only people from higher SES backgrounds, I think you could probably use fly fishing as a tool of, teaching and building awesome relationships to people and 
kind of learning about other people is something that's really cool about that. That's, too, so. that's cool. Really cool. A few years ago, my parents, my father had, had gotten into fly fishing. My parents took my whole family to Yellowstone and bought all oh, of wow. us fly rods. And I can vouch for that. We quickly went way deep into learning about flies, the local ecosystem, the seasons, which yeah. part of the river we were on, how the, the big water and all the tributaries were interacting and distributed. And it was so much fun. Yeah, it's great. I think the, the one other thing that I do for a hobby is weightlifting. There's a couple of us in the program that go to the gym together and we uh, kind of talk about papers that we've read recently and things like the SAAs that we're disappointed about. And and we lift weights with each other and then eat food together afterwards. And that's really awesome. That is pretty cool. Hobby. Anyway, so Vince, uh, how can people get a hold of you? You are active on Twitter. Uh, what else? And maybe give you your can, Twitter handle. Okay. You could, uh, so my Twitter handle is NeanderthalGenes. So at NeanderthalGenes, except I spell Neanderthal. And this is instance without an H. So it's N-E-A-N-D-E-R-T-A-L-G-E-N-E. Yes, because I have like, I'm in way in the tail end for amount of Neanderthal ancestry. <laughs> actually, I actually kind of identify as a Neanderthal sometimes, but um, <laughs> you, can, you can get in touch with me there. You can reach me by email at vmbatt at umich.edu. Cool. Yeah, this has been an absolutely great, great interview. I've really enjoyed it. Chris, how can people get hold of you? Yeah. Oh. Well, Vince already follows me, so we're good. No, I'm Chris, C-H-R-I-S underscore L-Y. And I'm at Kara Akabak. Uh, this has been the Sausage of Science. Vince, you've been fantastic. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no worries. We'll have to do another episode only about sausage next time. Right and weightlifting. And weightlifting. <laughs> we'll talk to everyone in two weeks. Take care. Bye. See you.